Welcome to Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast. All speakers on this podcast have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Hello to our loyal listeners and welcome back for episode three of our Stewardship, Leadership and Advocacy podcast mini-series brought to you by the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists or SIDP. This podcast series was supported by a medical education grant from Alinta Therapeutics. So thank you to our sponsors for the opportunity to be here today and discuss how we work to optimize patient care every single day. I am joined again by our awesome panel of Stewardship All-Stars. Guys, this is really a leadership dream team, so I'm excited you get to listen to them one last time, and I can't wait to learn more about their stewardship journeys today. If you haven't had a chance to listen to episodes one or two yet, I would highly encourage you to go back and do so. In episode one, just to recap, we talked about big picture goal setting within stewardship programs, really how to get started and where to go from there. And there's great advice for uh, people with ID training who are doing stewardship and non-ID training. And if you're a part of a stewardship team versus kind of a stewardship lone wolf. So there's a ton of great information in that episode. Then in our second episode, our panelists shared their insight about how to market stewardship programs with an emphasis on how to generate meaningful data to sustain and expand your program. So really great content there as well. I have the pleasure of serving as the host throughout this mini-series. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm an antimicrobial stewardship and infectious diseases pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh in what I think is the greatest sports city in the world, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now, let me reintroduce our panelists to you. So first, we have Lisa Dumko, the Antimicrobial Stewardship Leader at Mercy Health St. Mary's. Lisa, <laughs> that's a mouthful, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hey, Erin. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. And then our second speaker is Jamie Kisgin, the Pharmacy Manager for Infectious Diseases Services and PGY1 Residency Program Director at Sarasota Memorial Healthcare in sunny Florida. Jamie, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Aaron. Hi, everybody. It's great to be here with you today. And then finally, we welcome Libby Dodds-Ashley, who serves as the Operations Director for the Duke Antimicrobial Stewardship Outreach Network, or DASON. Libby is also the immediate past president of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists. Libby, hello. Hi, Aaron, Jamie, and Lisa. It's good to be here. This has been really fun, and I've learned so much from you guys so far. And I, I think I kind of went over this already, but again, just to recap for our audience, we've really kind of walked through this stewardship, leadership, and advocacy journey together. So how, whether you're in a new or existing stewardship role, how to really establish yourself, how to set goals both for yourself and as a team, and then importantly, how to generate data to show the good work that you're doing and, and to support your programs. I think the other cool thing I've learned from you guys and that we've discussed a lot throughout this series is that we focused on relationship building and then efforts to decentralize your stewardship efforts throughout your institution. So really engaging all pharmacists, all physicians, all nursing staff, infection prevention, microbiology, like you name it, everyone can and should be an antimicrobial steward. So today's my favorite part. Today we get into the feel-good thing. So beyond the science of it all, we're all people, right? And we're all just trying to do the best job we can to take care of our patients. And like even, we've talked about this a little, but even those who are seemingly resistant to antimicrobial stewardship efforts, they aren't bad people. They're just trying to take care of their patients too, and they they just don't know what they don't know. And so it's our job to teach, which is, you know, arguably the most difficult part sometimes. 
Lisa, why don't we start with you? Have you noticed like culture change at your institution since you've started your stewardship program? And how did that like evolve and how did you really start to teach people? Yeah, Aaron, I would say, you know, being here for five years, we've made a complete like 360 shift for stewardship over the that time period. When I started, we hadn't had a program at my institution, so there was no culture of stewardship. I actually remember my very first day here, I rounded with our critical care service and our critical care pharmacist. And so I'm up on rounds, trying to mind my own business, you know, meet new people and make new relationships. And the first patient we round on has pan-sensitive E. coli growing in their sputum. And we talk about the patient. They go through, you know, this is what we want to change for medications. But nobody mentions the cultures. Nobody mentions that the patient is on ertapenem for this pan-sensitive E. coli growing in the sputum. And the critical care attending says, okay, we got it. Let's move on to the next patient. And I put my hands up and I said, wait, are we not going to talk about the antibiotics at all? And he looked at me and said, what's wrong with the antibiotics? And I said, the patient has pan-sensitive E. coli and they're on ertapenem. And he said, yeah, that's fine. We don't de-escalate here. And I was shocked and I'm sure I showed horror on my face, which as an aside note, try, you should always try and mask what you're thinking <laughs> yeah. with your facial expression. Yeah. Uh, and I said, well, we're going to start right now. So we had a discussion about that. Um, at that point, I was kind of reporting back to my ID physicians, and they kind of were laughing and said, yeah, we know um, that nobody's de-escalating, even though when we ask people, they're like, oh, yeah, we de-escalate. So, and at that point, my the critical care attending was not really my biggest fan, I don't think, because he's like, we just don't ever do that. It wasn't something they were comfortable with. And now that attending is honestly one of our best stewards and one of our biggest advocates for our stewardship program. So it did help you know, me do education with the team right there first day, and then also start making those relationship building activities. Some other things that we did, um, I mean, so that's just one example, but some other things that we had to do when I first started was a lot of education with every single group. So that wasn't the only um, interaction that I had like that. It was pretty much a whole um, hospital-wide, we aren't de-escalating anything. So we had to do a ton of education with our antibiograms, specifically around carbapenems, there was really not um, a lot known that actually our carbapenem susceptibilities for pseudomonas were much worse than our cefepime susceptibilities. So we did a lot of shopping around our antibiogram, going to each of the individual groups individually to do education. We did a dual antibiogram also just to show that there was no added bonus of adding fluoroquinolones onto any of our beta-lactam since we were doing a lot of what's called triple therapy with vancomycin plus a beta-lactam and then a fluoroquinolone. So really just trying to stomp that out too and just make a culture change, which does take quite a bit of time. Yeah, Lisa, you know, I think one of the biggest things that helps and get those changes up and running is when you earn respect of the team. But that's a little bit of a double-edged sword. So I know that when I've gone into new hospitals, um, now in my current role doing consulting, you know, we're going into new hospitals all the time and meeting new prescribers, and you have to quickly gain their respect. Um, and the way you do that is often by helping them. You know, there are lots of times where in the stewardship team, I not only encourage de-escalation, but I've been known on the approval pager uh, when people call for a carbapenem to be like, I'm really worried about this patient. How about a few other things as well, just while we sort this out? And once they realize you're really there to help them think through the best for the patient, you do get their respect. And then when you come around and say, hey, I really don't think this drug is needed today, that carries a lot more weight. But you do have to be a little careful and be sure that everybody realizes what you're doing as part of the stewardship team. You know, I think lots of services get used to their pharmacist or their curbside physician that they might be talking to and not realizing it's part of the overall stewardship program. So it is important that we identify a stewardship as well, because um, I have had the experience of 
facilities being like, well, we don't have a stewardship program. You know, we have Libby. Or then after I moved into my leadership role in Rochester, it was the pharmacist uh, who took over the stewardship team. So I've seen that happen lots of different ways. But I think earning trust and respect is so important to getting these initiatives off the ground and really cementing them and going from the low-hanging fruit to the more difficult interventions. I think Libby and Lisa bring up several great points. I think it's important that they see you as a resource for the team. They can't see you as just the antibiotic police, that your only mission is about stopping antibiotics. They need to see that you're about appropriate use of antibiotics. One of the early lessons I had is that the frontline physician needs to see that you have the patient's best interest at heart, that you've done your homework to learn about their patient. Once they see you have a patient's interest at heart, they are more likely to see you as an ally and an asset. To Erin's point about building your team, she's absolutely right. You don't do this alone. I remember when I first got myself established with our pharmacy team over 10 years ago, I was getting texts and phone calls all the time. In the beginning, this was great. I felt like I was making a difference and being helpful. But at the same time, this was taking me away from my home life. You need to find the right balance. I learned at that point that I should be building my team around me. I started to have an education customer with my pharmacist. We developed ID pearls and guidelines for the commonly asked scenarios which were later posted on our hospital stewardship website. This helped empower our amazing group of pharmacists and build their confidence. They became our stewards on the floor and in the ER. Several years ago, we showed these pearls to our CMO, and he loved them. He said, let me share this with our staff. And so the medical staff now sends out routine uh, emails from the stewardship program to all over 900 physicians who uh, come to our hospital. And it's really helped expand our reach and our brand of stewardship and making it easier for us to engage providers. Jamie, I think that's really great and super powerful. Um, One thing I do want to just caution our listeners, too, is that none of this happens overnight, that culture change within an institution typically takes years. I know here it honestly took us about three years to really feel the impact of everything that we had implemented At first, we were trying to do a lot. Again, I said, you know, you really should be patient. You need to make, you know, a goal of three maybe big um, initiatives that you want to implement per year. And so we were doing that. And again, so that's stewardship is a marathon. So give yourself time to really see the impact of your work. And none of this is going to happen overnight. But in in a few years with patients, you'll be really impressed to see, you know, just that culture of stewardship take off at your institution. Yeah, that's a really great point, Lisa. I actually, we actually are implementing or going live with a big stewardship initiative at UPMC today. And I was telling one of my friends and colleagues about it and he like responded. He was like, I feel like you've been doing something with this for the past six, like every day for the past six months has been like this initiative day. And I was like, it takes that long. I was like, it really has. I've spent the past six months probably meeting about this daily, but yeah, these things just evolve slowly. Yeah, I would say, you know, we just presented at our Quality Improvement Committee a few weeks ago some of our asymptomatic bacteria education, which we've presented before there just in a different way, um, like initiatives that we had done previously. It's always going on. I mean, I think all the time everyone's like, you're always targeting asymptomatic bacteria. I'm like, yes, because it continues to be an issue. And, you know, we have new providers all the time and new residents. So it's always going to be something that we're targeting And we're just trying to hit it in multiple different ways. This time we're partnering with our infection prevention program. Um, We did a symptom-free P initiative, and now we're doing like a Project Zero initiative with infection prevention, partnering with stewardship. So yes, it's almost like these things just keep coming up, um, but we're trying to continuously cycle around with our providers to give feedback, not just negative feedback, but definitely want to give them positive feedback when they do a good job, which I feel like right now is actually where we are with a lot of our initiatives with our stewardship program is giving a lot of positive feedback. 
So it's not just repetitive of the same thing over and over again, but really just building on what we've already done. Yeah, Lisa, I have to say, like doing peer comparisons between different providers, there used to be such reluctance to doing that, but it's really being embraced now across the quality continuum. And it's something we've used in a positive way in stewardship. I was just presenting to a hospital's quality committee a few weeks ago, and last year I was there to talk about overuse of a particular targeted agent, and we actually were able to show it by a provider. And this year I was able to go back, and that same provider was actually in the room, and I was able to highlight how by working with him, he used none of the drug in the past calendar year. And that's great. So, you know, the whole team was happy. So they saw the successes, but then someone was applauded for what they had done to try to set an example for other providers. So I think, you know, there are great ways. Everyone thinks of these provider report cards as punitive, but they're really a positive motivation tool that you can use and say, look, we do look and we do care. And it isn't just another initiative that we are never going to give you feedback on. Like, look, this is what's happening. And let's talk about why it's different. You know, different isn't always bad. Sometimes different is really good. And providers have figured out a great regimen that solves another problem for us. So using them in a positive way, I think, can really help engage more providers in stewardship. And now I know when I walk in a hospital, everybody wants to know if I have their data for them, if I run into them in the cafeteria. I think that's so powerful, Libby, in establishing, you know, that team mentality and a new culture um, for stewardship. We just did something similar with our outpatient offices. Um, we've been trying to get each of the outpatient offices up with audit and feedback slowly using our ambulatory care pharmacists. And so my stewardship physician and I went and did education at one of our offices last week, and we actually showed them some data from one of the other offices and talked about how the audit and feedback process went. And at first they were really nervous. They're like, wait, we get to see our own data and then our colleagues data and compare it. And we were like, yes. And, you know, it's actually helped, you know, build a culture of stewardship within the other offices and people see what other people are prescribing. And it kind of becomes this like friendly competition almost um, to see who can get the most positive feedback, to be completely honest. And at that point, then they were really excited because we were going to be giving them positive feedback. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think it's in so important to engage providers, giving them that feedback, both positive and in areas for improvement. I think it's also important to engage providers on new initiatives. They need to see it from the front end. They need to see the value you're, you're going to provide with these new initiatives. I can just point to one recent experience, we were implementing a new rapid diagnostic test for blood cultures. At first, our stewardship group was excited uh, by the opportunity, being able to have a quicker turnaround time on identification and susceptibility. But once we started to dive in deeper and map everything out, we realized we needed a team approach. We needed everyone at the table to, to see the process, to see the flow, to make it be successful. We needed our ID physicians to support the initiative. That was one thing the lab needed. We need our lab department to get approval in the budget. So they need to be aware of what the value and why this cost is important. The stewardship and micro team had to design a process for communicating these results in a timely and efficient manner. Later, I realized I also needed to get my pharmacy staff to buy into it because we wanted to provide coverage beyond the usual eight to five Monday through Friday. We wanted nights, we wanted weekends, and that required my pharmacy staff to be engaged, to be aware and know how to, how to respond when they get these alerts for these new rapid diagnostic results. I was really amazed by the response and engagement from our team. Uh, the providers were real excited. Our pharmacists were excited. They really saw the value and how that could impact our patients' care. And it really helped us have a more smooth transition and rollout of this diagnostic test. And then getting feedback, we kind of did a quick sample in the first month and said, look, this is providing good value to our patients. It was, we had to tell our lab director, hey, 
hey, thanks for doing this. And look at the impact we're having. And again, to our providers, they see that every day and they're like, thank God we have this test now because we can make better decisions for our patients. That's really awesome, Jamie. I think nothing makes my heart happier than when new people get excited about what we're trying to do with ID and just in general, like making antibiotics less scary for people across the board and showing that we really are here to help them and, and implement these systems to help everyone optimize their use. So I think that's that's so exciting. It's fun to talk about like how people change though and, and when people see the light, but do you guys have examples of when people, maybe individuals or maybe entire divisions or entire practices that don't buy into stewardship still or, or who was the slowest to change kind of and then what are you doing to, to try to inspire those people still? I think for us, you know, one of the things I learned a couple of years ago was this whole idea of social stewardship and the psychology behind it. And it really kind of opened my eyes because I realized we probably all need psych degrees to do stewardship and do it right. <laughs> and really you understand where is the mindset, right? What, what's driving these decisions for antibiotic prescribing? Because it sometimes is a knowledge deficit. We have to address that certainly in those situations. But sometimes there's other things to be aware of. And, you know, when I first was getting pushback on one of our ASB initiatives, I'm like, what's going on? And then I started to talk to these providers. I started to understand, well, what's the thought process? You know, is it a knowledge gap or is it a, an emotional driving, driving reason for giving these antibiotics? And all of a sudden you can change directions. You can kind of think about what's my, what's my take with this particular provider because I know this is the rationale that they're going to use when I, when I present this case to them. I know what they're going to say back. So I know how to you know, approach them a little bit better and, you know, is it just a colonization? And so you start to have these conversations and really think about the psychology of it and the social stewardship. This has been a hot topic. If anybody's been to an ID meeting in the last few years, you know, you've heard this whole concept, but I think it's important for us as stewards is to really appreciate that and, and embrace that. And then of course, think about ways we can tackle these problems as they come up. Yeah, Jamie, I think that's really important. And like just getting into people's head and trying to think how they think, I don't like to pick on the surgeons, but I would just say that that's still the group that we have the hardest time getting to buy in. And when I have learners on rotation with me or even like the other um, pharmacists that I work with, I mean, we get frustrated because we feel like sometimes we're having the same conversations day after day with our surgery teams, but then I try and remind everybody not to be so frustrated with them and just, you know, kill them with kindness, be nice to them. It's usually residents that we're working with and they just don't know what they don't know. And usually some education goes a long way. And they're also the one team in our hospital that doesn't have a dedicated pharmacist. So just, you know, we want to make inroads with them and build a relationship with them and just being helpful to them, you know, making a recommendation and sometimes just saying like, I can put the order in for you or I can send those discharge meds over to our meds to beds program for you. Um, actually, it makes a huge impact on our relationship with them. Um, they actually really want the help. You know, once you talk to them, give them the information, usually they're more than willing to talk to you and accept your recommendation or at least come to an agreement on what would be best for the patient. So just keeping that in mind. But yeah, I would say the surgery teams are probably the hardest ones for us to get involved with just because we don't have a dedicated presence with them. But we still make yeah. inroads with them every single day. Sometimes today yeah. you present your case, you present your rationale, why you're making these decisions. And maybe today they don't agree. Maybe they don't stop an antibiotic. Maybe they don't put that stuff date in. But you may have planted a seed. And maybe that next case, next week, may actually bear fruit. And I think it's important to be patient not expect to win every battle, but maybe in the long run, you can make an impact on that particular provider. And maybe you will change their mind. It may not happen today, but maybe tomorrow or next week, you'll actually see the fruits of your labor and effort. Totally. Yeah. And I feel like we see that very often in practice. 
I think those are such good points you guys bring up and not only being patient and kind of planting seeds, but also and being present. So Lisa talked about it. It's more difficult to make recommendations when they're not used to interacting with a pharmacist or a member of the stewardship team. I mean, I can't even imagine being in charge of a patient or owning a patient and then getting a call from some random person I've never met and being like having this person tell me that I need to change what I've prescribed or change certain things when uh, admittedly their knowledge of antibiotics may not be that in depth. And so just respecting where they're coming from, like we're calling them from out of the blue and they may have never seen our face and, and asking them to change something about their patient. I mean, of course they should take time to consider that before saying yes or saying no. I think the PEDS people really do this right. So Amanda Hurst out in Colorado and their group, like probably four years ago now, first published on this concept of handshake stewardship. And I love that term, right? The more we can put a face to stewardship, I think the better. Along with that too, I mean, we implement a lot of things and we've talked a little bit about giving providers feedback on their prescribing and things like that. But what about feedback from them on just stewardship as a whole? So either on your team or on interactions or on a particular thing you've implemented. Do you guys seek feedback from your providers on that kind of stuff once you go live with certain initiatives? You know, that's a great point, Erin. It's something we try to do and probably don't do as well as we should, but I think um, that's actually one way we try to engage the providers, not always on board with stewardship, is working with them to, to listen to, well, well, what is wrong with this? Or what is the, your biggest challenge in this initiative, whatever it be, whether it be a diagnostic stewardship intervention or trying to creatively corral antibiotic use to certain areas when we're trying to prevent resistance. And, you know, it's, it's really enlightening to hear what they have to say. And a lot of times they really appreciate being asked, you know, it, and sometimes the fixes are really simple. You know, they'll say, oh, it's really annoying because to do the thing you want me to do, it's four clicks and over here. And you're like, oh, well, we can totally change the way that's showing on your screen. No worries. But, you know, sometimes it's even just setting up provider preference list, standing beside them on the unit. And so we do it informally. I know there are others with experience getting more formal stewardship feedback as part of annual surveys and things. You know, Jamie, Lisa, do you have any experience with that? Yeah, Libby, I would say we we do some informal feedback. Um, we go out and do every six months education with our main groups. And so this maybe isn't the best mechanism to do feedback is every six months asking, you know, we implemented this thing, you know, three or four months ago. How do you guys feel about it? It's not immediate feedback, but we do have some initiatives where we will send out surveys um, to try and get in the moment feedback. And then the other big thing I would say is just having some open communication with your providers. I ask them to call me if there's any issues. I mean, almost every week I get calls from providers saying like, I don't like the way this lab test looks. Can you help me fix that? Or I have a question about this thing that you guys are doing. And it's good in the moment feedback. Any feedback that you get can be really, really helpful, whether it's formal feedback or just those in the moment kind of things. I think so feedback is probably one of my favorite topics outside of infectious diseases. Um, it's like a mentorship thing that I've always been really passionate about. And I think, cause I think it's so, so important, but I think giving and receiving feedback appropriately is not a skill that comes naturally to a lot of people. And this is something we teach from a preceptorship standpoint in residency training and in leadership training and, and things like that. And stewardship, I mean, you have to be really good clinically at infectious diseases, but you also have to have all these softer skills we're talking about with um, kind of this humanistic approach and, and the ability to give and receive effective feedback. Did you guys seek out any formal leadership training or mentorship when you started on your stewardship journeys, both in the ID realm and in kind of this how to how to lead others and how to communicate? 
I learned, I learned that early on in my time as a surgeon pharmacist here was that this was a gap for me, is being able to understand what the value of leadership training, understanding how it is as a leader, um, how do I go about process change? How do I go about engaging folks to buy, to buy, buy into your initiatives? And so one of the things I did is when I would go to conferences, I would look for CE or programs that really kind of centered around that. I know Libby does a lot of talks around that, leading a stewardship, and she's a great advocate for that. Uh, going to conferences and talking about leading large programs. And I think just having more of those opportunities are helpful. To me, I also looked into my institution re resources. I mean, leadership, a lot of the skills, those soft skills, kind of apply to a lot of areas. And you'd be surprised how much of that is, is, is around in your local institution. Because a lot of times they're trying to build stronger leaders in the organization, whether it's nurses, physicians, et cetera. And I think tapping into that resource has helped me a lot. And then just having a mentor, like my clinical manager has been a mentor for me for a number of years and helped me be a better leader within our department, be a better, better leader of our residency program. And I think it's really tapping into those, those people that can inspire you and give you great examples and, and direct you in the right direction that I think are key to your growth as a stewardship leader and as a pharmacist. Yeah, Jamie, you know, I would echo. So first of all, I would say I didn't seek this out as part of my initial career as a stewardship pharmacist, but I have an amazing stroke of luck that I have stumbled upon um, or have been taken on by the most amazing mentors. And they have been wonderful examples and role models to me. And then when I assumed a leadership role when I was in Rochester, there was some formal training like you talked about through the university. But I can't stress enough how you know, you can't learn leadership from a book. It's really a style. So you you need those skill sets. You know, you need to do the classroom work, but then you need to listen to the people that you admire the most and look for styles that you think work well and fit with you and then try to adapt them for yourself. And, you know, I can't, I agree with you entirely that I can't stress enough the importance of mentors. My, my first mentors when I was day one stewardship pharmacist are people that I still talk to all the time. In fact, was texting with one of them last night. So they, that is really how I encourage people to be and build themselves as leaders is get a good group of people who have your back that you can bounce things off of. Um, and there are different types of mentors for different types of situations. So depending on what I'm facing, I, it might be, you know, talking to someone here at the institution or someone who I've worked with in the past just to bounce things off of, um, but so valuable in honing your leadership skills, which is an ongoing, you are never done. It is a constant process. Lisa, you were kind of a, a new pharmacist at, and it completely established a stewardship program. So I don't know if there was anyone at your institution that was able to provide maybe stewardship specific mentorship when you started, but how did you kind of, I know you had an amazing residency and things like that. How did you kind of find your leadership training and mentorship? I'd say my path has been really similar to Jamie's, our clinical manager here, who he wasn't actually in that role at that time. He was our residency director then, um, was a great mentor to me just in terms of leadership style. And also our ID physicians were great mentors to me as well, just from a program management standpoint or just being able to come to them with any questions. And of course, my residency preceptors still leaned on them and still do lean on them when I have questions. So just being able to reach out um, as a new practitioner was really important for me. Even nowadays, I text with them, but also with some of the other stewardship pharmacists that I trained with, even we have an ongoing ID text and we text all the time just with different things going on and questions that we have for each other, which is really, really nice and kind of co-mentor each other through different things. 
yeah, I think there's something to be said about that. Like there's strength in numbers. I have a, a similar kind of exchange with several ID pharmacists all across the country. And I don't know, a couple of days ago, I texted them this weird question that came up and like literally no one knew the answer. And this is varying degrees of experience <laughs> and whatever. And I was like, okay, well, that's good that none of us know this. Um, <laughs> So uh, there's kind of comfort in that. Also, I definitely, when I was a resident, one of my like OG mentors was actually a critical care pharmacist. And he just like taught me everything about the institution, you know? And then he was like, if you want to be effective in, in, in making recommendations and changing how people prescribe antibiotics, I mean, you need to understand like where these critical care people are coming from and who's been here the longest and, and how these committees work and why they do what they do. So I think mentorship comes in so many shapes and sizes. I think that's and that really... type of mentorship is so important. And even my clinical manager was like, just watch your body language and things like that. Things you don't even think about, which I think is also a really important uh, point is like, you, you can say so much without saying anything. All right, guys, we're coming up on the end here, as, as sad as I am for this podcast miniseries to be over. But I have two kind of big questions to end with, and anyone can answer. But first, I think I want to know, I think our audience wants to know, so we've talked a lot about a lot of things and things we've learned. What One piece of advice, what do you wish you had known or would have done differently in your path to becoming a stewardship leader? I think for me, I wish I had taken more time during my PGY2 residency to understand the administrative side of stewardship and what it means to be a specialist. All my focus and energy was on the clinical aspects of the job. I don't feel like I learned enough about the other stuff, the finances, the budgets, setting long-term goals, setting a vision. I think these are skills that need to be fostered and developed. So for those out there who are managing PGY2 programs or residents who are going down that path, definitely don't neglect that in your training. I think it's very critical because of how many hats we have to wear to learn all of those various skills. Couldn't agree more, Jamie. I think I try to focus with my residents to, to really teach them like, yeah, I want you to know the science and data and do these cool research projects, but you also need to know how to implement things if you want to take a stewardship job. And so building those skills in residency, Jamie, I'm going to flip it on you. What are you most proud of in your career as an ID pharmacist? That's a tough question. I, I made it to the cheesy route. I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to go with the cheesy route. I would <laughs> I point love it. to my students and residents that I've had the pleasure to work with over the last 10 years. My hope along that way is that I put a little ID and stewardship spark in all of them, regardless of their journey, whether they're going on to be pain specialists, oncology specialists. We all know ID affects every world in pharmacy and every patient population. So I feel like just seeing their growth and seeing them become little stewards out there in the world has been a great journey for me, and I look forward to doing that more. Yeah, Jamie, you're doing it right. We should all be PGY1 directors or even like, you know, appy directors. And then we can like get everyone into ID earlier. <laughs> we're, we're waiting too late to start them as a PGY2. I love it. Okay, Lisa, your turn. What do you wish you would have done differently? Kind of similar to what Jamie had said in a previous question that, you know, when I started, I was trying to do everything myself and I was getting all these calls and texts, you know, even after hours. And I felt that I was doing a great job and like being really involved with everybody. But what I should have been really focusing on was training my frontline staff right then so that it wasn't all me, me, me being the one that everybody went to for everything. Because my other pharmacists, my clinical and staff pharmacists are great stewards also. Um, but it took me a while to really get there and get them trained and up to speed. For sure. And what are you most proud of? Jamie, I don't think your answer was sappy at all. I really think I'm most proud of just the training that I, we do here for stewardship for our residents and students. And just seeing them, you know, 
either go into residency for our students or out in the world as practicing pharmacists and seeing what great stewards they are, even if they're not ID pharmacists, clinical generalists with an awesome stewardship knowledge base or ED pharmacists with an awesome stewardship knowledge base. It just makes me so proud to see what our learners are doing. Um, besides that, though, just the culture change within our institution over the last five years is the other thing that I'm probably most proud of. Yeah, it sounds like you've just done an amazing job. You should be really proud of yourself. Livy, your turn. What do you wish you had known at the beginning or what would you have done differently on your path? Yeah, so that is such a tough question because are there things I would have done differently? Absolutely. But every time one of those things happened, did I learn a ton? I did. And so I think that's the advice I would give to the listeners is don't feel defeated. You're going to do things wrong. There are going to be things that in hindsight you wish you had done differently, but use those to learn and don't be too hard on yourself. This is a marathon, not a sprint. It's a long career. And I think that you just have to look at it as what can I do differently next time? And what do I take away from this? So what are you most proud of then kind of on that note? Yeah. So we did not prepare or pre-discuss our answers, but you know, I agree. I have to say that when I sit and look at all the things I've done and the opportunities I've had, I really am most proud that there are, you know, that handful of people who look to me as a mentor. And I hope what the listeners take from that is that you are not bothering people. I can't tell you how often I get texts or calls that start with, I'm sorry to bother you. You know, those are the calls that make my day. So please do not feel that you're bothering your mentors ever, never. So you should always reach out and know that it is a mutually beneficial relationship. And so um, find those mentors, go out there, get going and see what great stewardship you can do. That's awesome. And now I have all of y'all's cell phone numbers. So now I will text you all the time. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast will live forever. (laughs) But no, seriously, I I cannot thank you guys enough. I think I speak for everyone, our listeners. I know I'm speaking for myself, just saying thank you for sharing your stories with us and teaching us so many valuable stewardship lessons. This has been really, really inspiring. I I know I, for one, am quite inspired and I feel a lot more empowered in my day to day. Like I'm not alone in this and these things can't happen and they they take time. But you guys have made such a a powerful impact on ID and on pharmacy. Um, So thank you for all that you do. Thank you as well to our sponsor, Melinda Therapeutics and to the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists or SIDP. Again, I am joined today by Lisa Dumko, the antimicrobial stewardship leader at Mercy Health St. Mary's in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Jamie Kisgan, who is the pharmacy manager for infectious diseases services and the PGY1 residency program director at Sarasota Memorial Healthcare in Florida. And then Libby Dodds-Ashley from Durham, North Carolina, who serves as the operations director for the Duke Antimicrobial Stewardship Outreach Network. Again, my name is Erin McCreary. I'm an infectious diseases stewardship pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh. And thank you guys so much for listening. You've been listening to Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast. For more information, please visit sidp.org slash podcasts.